I've mentioned to some when it was mentioned that Brian was going to lead the singing and lead the opening prayer, I've mentioned to some that when I was a student at uh, Memphis School of Preaching, we were traveling back to Memphis from a weekend trip to my hometown of Smithville and driving back on Sunday afternoon and stopped in Stanton, Tennessee for worship there in the evening, not getting all the way back to Memphis to worship with the congregation where one of my instructors, the late Brother Frank Young, was preaching uh, for that congregation. And when we walked in, he said, uh, oh, good to see you or whatever. Uh, get your Bible and preach. And I said, uh, uh, you know, no, I, I want to hear something. I don't know what I said, but prob probably something like that. <laughs> and uh, uh, he said, "Now get your Bible and preach." And I turned to Sister Young, uh, Sister Gracie, and I said, um, "You know, something." And she said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I said, uh, um, "Then it, when, I, when I turned to her it was after he said, and get your songbook and lead to singing too." <laughs> That's when I turned to Sister Gracie and I said, "Is he serious?" <laughs> And she said, oh, yes, he's serious, and he was. And so I uh, led the singing and preached, and uh, that was kind of a similar experience uh, when you extend the invitation and then put down your Bible and pick up the songbook and lead the singing. But we loved Brother and Sister Young. Uh, they were great, great uh, folks. Sister Young was one of other Gus Nichols, uh, Brother and Sister Nichols' daughters, uh, who um, was a fine, fine Christian uh, lady. We appreciate those Christians who have influenced our lives and meant so much to us uh, over the years. And that's true of so many here. We appreciate and love you. And as we begin a new year together, uh, we certainly want you to know how much we appreciate this congregation and love this congregation and what you mean to the Dearman family. And you know, as we begin a new year, we are beginning a year in which we expect nothing less than the kind of uh, assault or attack against the Bible that we've experienced in the year that has just ended. And as I have said more than once from this pulpit in the year just ended, I believe we are seeing attacks on the scripture more frequently and more vehemently than at any time in my lifetime. And I believe that regardless of your age here tonight, you would probably agree with that statement. Uh, and yet we need to recognize that we need to meet those attacks. You know, the song we, we sang, A Beautiful Prayer, ties in with the scripture with which I wanted to introduce the uh, lesson tonight concerning uh, the Bible and uh, its defense against its attackers and the attitude that we wish that, that the world had toward the will of God, toward the written word of God. It's the attitude that Jesus expressed in the garden in Luke chapter 22. At verse 39, beginning, And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Don't we wish that that was the attitude of of every man, woman, and, and child, not my will, but your will be done. And that really should be the attitude toward the Word of God, because Jesus said of it, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away, Matthew 24, verse 35. Here's what Peter wrote about that word, about the gospel of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. And so despite its attackers as they come and go, the word of the Lord endures forever because it is the word of the Lord, because it is the all-sufficient, verbally inspired word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The process of inspiration is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, that the Spirit of God has been revealed to inspired men who penned those words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we have those words today when we have an accurate and a standard translation of those words, we know that we have the Word of God. And you know, there are Bibles in probably 90-something percent of the households in America as far as the, uh, the widespread nature or existence of, of the Word of God. That's not to say they're reading it as they should in those 90-something percent households that, that have one Bible, probably three or four Bibles. But the Bible is still a bestseller, isn't it? And when you compare it to other writings, there is no comparison, but rather a contrast. Homer's works have been uh, translated into 20 modern languages. Tolstoy's into 40 languages. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress lives in 118 different languages. But the Bible, in whole or in part, has been translated into over 1,300 languages or dialects. You may have heard, and I may have mentioned it from this pulpit, that the French philosopher Voltaire was one who predicted that in less than 100 years from his time, Christianity would have passed into oblivion, that it would be a part of history. And yet it is said that his very house where he lived was later packed with Bibles as it became a depot for the Geneva Bible Society. And it was also said that his old printing press was used to print the Word of God. Voltaire has come and gone. His prediction has come and gone. The Word of God is still here. Of the Bible, these words have been written. It has weathered all the storms of hate. It has withstood all the thunderbolts of wrath. It has triumphed over the edicts of tyranny. It has endured, endured all the anathemas of infidelity. It has conquered all the gnawing teeth of time. It has outlived, outlifted, outlooked, outloved, outreached, outranked, and outblessed all other books, and it has. And yet the Bible in 2013 will have its critics just as it had its critics in 2012, and just as long as time stands, I'm sure it will have its critics. They may be more numerous than ever in the time in which we find ourselves, however. The attackers are many, and the attacks continue to be leveled against the Word of God. Tonight I'd like to discuss some of those attacks as we enter a new year to be reminded that we are going to be attacked, that Christianity is going to be under assault, that the Bible is going to be under assault from various attackers, but the Bible has answers for all its attackers. One of those attackers is atheism, obviously. A frontal assault is the kind of assault that is leveled against the Bible by atheists who attack its author. How could God be the author of the Bible if God doesn't exist? And so the atheists are not going to have any time for the Word of God because they don't believe that God himself 
exist. But if God does exist, then I contend that the Bible is the logical outgrowth of his existence. We would anticipate, we would expect that if there is a God, if God does exist and God created the heavens and the earth and God created man in his own image, that God would communicate to the pinnacle of his creation. And there are many people who believe in the existence of God and yet deny the inspiration of Scripture or give lip service to its inspiration and yet spend no quality time whatsoever searching its pages to know what the will of God is for their lives. That's inconsistent because truly to say that God exists to me would lead one logically to the conclusion that God somewhere, somehow, has certainly communicated His will to us. Wouldn't that make sense? Well, the deist says it doesn't make sense. The deist says God exists, but that God created us and left us to our own devices and cares absolutely nothing about who we are, where we've been, or where we are going. And that makes no sense to me. Why would a God in heaven create man and then forget all about him completely? To what purpose would that creation be? Yes, that's the position of deism. But if you are one who believes in God, who is not a deist, then wouldn't it make sense to look for, and even for the deist to be consistent, to look for a communication, at least explore the possibility that God has not left us to our own devices after creating us, but that he has communicated, and when he does... When he does conduct that search, if he's objective in doing so, he can come away from that search with no other conclusion than that this book is like no other that's ever been produced and that it could not have been produced by man. And we'll see that in the answers to the attackers. But atheism is a frontal assault, as is agnosticism. And agnosticism differs only from atheism in that it, it says we don't know. We're skeptical. We do not know. It's just as damaging because it says that there's really no conclusive evidence either outside of this book or within this book that would lead us to a definite conclusion that there is a God. But the book itself says we can know God. The book itself says we can know God. You remember what Solomon charged his son, or David charged his son Solomon with in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9, as uh, David was on his deathbed as such, he said, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. You can know him, know the God of your father. Not only that, he said, and serve him. Serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts, he said, and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. If you seek him, he will be found. But you have to seek him honestly and objectively. And the agnostic obviously has not done that. We can know God. That Old Testament passage says we can, and a New Testament passage says we can. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we know him. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. But you know, it's not just the atheist and not just the agnostics that attack the Bible. Apostasy attacks the Bible. Apostasy is an attack against the Bible. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 
chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Here was his prediction by inspiration. Because he says this is by the Spirit, I'm telling you this. Now the Spirit expressly says, expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. He goes on forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Some will depart from the faith. And those departures are attacks against the Bible. Because those who've embraced it, who then depart from it, are saying, in effect, we no longer believe this to be our standard. We no longer trust it to guide us in our lives. We are turning our backs upon it. And that kind of departure divides. And yet many who have apostatized, ironically, claim still to believe the Bible. But the only way they can claim to believe the Bible is to, in effect, by their own departures, change, change the rules, if you will, about what this book says. Oh, yes, they can give lip service to it and they can say, I believe the Bible, I just don't believe what I once believed about the Bible. I view it differently. I see it differently. And that's what the change agents in the Lord's church have done. Apostasy attacks the Bible. And that kind of apostasy, when one who has loved the faith, embraced the faith, been faithful to the Lord, when one in that situation leaves and goes into apostasy, into liberalism or into total uh, worldliness again, making no pretense of even uh, believing the Bible as he or she once did, it becomes a tremendous barrier to the belief of others. I mentioned that this morning in our study and our devotional time on Good News Today as we were looking at John 17, 20 and 21, which truly is the, the Lord's prayer, that prayer that he prayed near the end of his life in the garden. And you remember those verses? I do not pray for these alone, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through what? Through their word. Where, where's the power? In the word. Belief will come through what? Through the word. Those who believe in me through their word, what about it? That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one, also may be one in us. Listen to this. That the world may believe that you sent me, that the world may believe. Be one so that the world may believe. You think division religiously today is any kind of barrier to belief of those out here in the world? Of course it is. They look and they see the division that characterizes so-called Christianity, and they say, well, if you can't even agree on what the Bible teaches, why do you expect me to embrace the Bible? We need to be one, and apostasy is not being one. Apostasy divides. Apostasy, apostasy becomes a barrier to belief of others. It's tragic that some have left the church having once embraced it. I don't know how many times, even recently, I've run into people who have mentioned to me when they uh, understand that I am preaching for the church of our Lord, the church of Christ, oh, I... 
I, that, that's the church I grew up in. Or I was, I was raised in the church of Christ. I was, I was, I was. I've heard that statement more than once, even in recent days. And it's sad, isn't it? Because they're saying, I was there, but no longer am I there. Apostasy is an attack against the Bible. Not just atheism, not just agnosticism, but apostasy. And what about apathy? What about apathy within the church, apathy outside the church? How do Americans today in 2013 as we enter a new year, how do they view this book? How much time do they spend with this book? Just about every survey you could look at from years past up until today will tell you pretty much the same thing. There is a trend downward in terms of those who are spending quite a bit of time with the Word of God. Ownership of the Bible, as we said earlier, oh yes, it is, it's sky high. It is sky high. Most American homes have a Bible. Most American homes probably have more than one Bible. Well, what about the attitude? It's apathetic when it comes to meditating upon the Word of God. That's something that's totally foreign to far too many people. There's more meditation going on in the realm of yoga and all this other uh, stuff. I saw a story the other day that said they're even teaching it yoga now in the schools. And there's some parents who are pretty upset about that because yoga, as one parent was uh, commenting, I saw on, a, on the news program that there's some ties to Hinduism with this kind of meditation process and so forth. And they were concerned about that being taught to their children. And I'm offhand, I'd say I'm pretty much with that lady in terms of that concern as well. One other fellow was talking about it from a sports standpoint. He's saying it's not a sport. There's no team involved, therefore it's not a sport. <laughs> and uh, he was saying, uh, questioning, he was saying it's fine as a, as a substitute, but it's not teaching teamwork. It's not teaching that kind of thing. But the point is, there are more people who are concerned about meditation of that sort than they are about meditating upon the Word of God day and night as the psalmist admonished. We're to love it, and we're to meditate upon it. And even in the church, tragically, we find apathy. And there are people today who are turning to every other source but the Bible for help. The self-help books, the New Age-type material, the philosophies, etc., of men. And what about academia? Academia is an attack many times against the Word of God, and I've said before, education is all right, but it's possible for one to educate himself right out of his faith. And tragically, they've been those who have been guilty of doing that very thing. And we can see the academia nuts, some of them, in uh, Acts chapter 17. I've mentioned before, I, I, I love macadamia nuts, but academia nuts are a different kind of uh, variety. And you can find those at the uh, Areopagus, can't you? In Acts chapter 17, they came together there on that hill and they, all they wanted to do was come together and see what new thing was out there. Talk about that new thing. And that kind of attitude didn't die with the Areopagites on Mars Hill. Education is fine in its place. But certainly when education causes the so-called higher critics 
and that's a misnomer if I ever heard one, to try to dismantle the Word of God by their higher criticism, trying to say that um, Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah and the uh, Deutero-Isaiah and all of this and all of these uh, accusations against the Word of God that prophecies are not really prophecies, they were all written after the fact rather than before the fact and so on, then education has left its proper function when people fall into that kind of thinking. So who are the attackers? Atheism, agnosticism, apostasy, apathy, academia. What about the answers? As we begin 2013, we need to be reminded that no matter how, how widespread the attacks are from whatever sources they may come, they may intensify in this year and in the coming years. Who knows what the future holds in terms of those who will try to completely destroy confidence in the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus said, will by no means pass away. The Word of the Lord endures forever. Why? For one reason, because of its preparation. It is prepared put together like no other book. You will never find any human being being able to put together a book with such perfect unity and harmony as the Bible has been compiled by 40 writers over a period of 1,500 years from different economic and social and educational backgrounds, men of all varieties from those standpoints and yet completely unified, completely harmonious, completely consistent over a period of 1,500 years with 40 different people writing, and yet not one single inconsistency, not one single contradiction can be leveled against this book. And I can assure you, especially with the proliferation of the attacks in recent years, let alone years prior, to these most recent years, if such a contradiction could be found, it would have been found, and it would have been exposed, and we likely wouldn't even be here tonight because this book would have been discredited. It hasn't been. It will not be discredited in 2013. I don't care how widespread the attacks are, from whom they come, they will not discredit this book because it's prepared, first of all, like no other book. It depicts people as does no other book. There's no other book that man has ever written that details both the good and the bad qualities that points out the frailties as well as the, as the good things as does the Bible. David, a man after God's own heart, is a beautiful example of that, isn't he? The man after God's own, own heart and yet he was a human being whose frailties are pointed out, whose sins are depicted in the Word of God because it is fair in its depiction of people. What about prophecies? Oh, it's perhaps the most powerful, if not one of the most powerful proofs of the inspiration of God's book. Not only the way it's prepared, not only the way it deals with the people that are, that are written about in its pages, but the prophecies themselves. That's where people concentrate their attacks so many times because they have to try to discount the prophetic nature of this book. 
And that's why they try to tell us these books couldn't have been written by the proposed writer. For example, Isaiah. How could he have, how could he have become known as the messianic prophet? How could he have written so many things about the Christ in a time 700 plus years before Christ and have those become fulfilled in minute detail. There had to be a Deutero or a second Isaiah. There had to be someone who wrote after the fact, not before. And yet they'll never be able to discount the prophetic element in Scripture. How could Isaiah write about a man named Cyrus who would be the one who would issue the decree, the Persian ruler, that would allow God's people to return from Babylonian captivity after the 70 years captivity? How could he write about a man and call him by name over a hundred years before that man was ever born? You see why the critics have to say, well, he didn't do that. He, somebody else wrote after Cyrus was born. That couldn't have been written before Cyrus was born. Oh, yes, it could. Let's go to a passage in Isaiah and see something that Isaiah writes that is a challenge that lives to this very moment in time, a challenge to those who would try to discount and discredit the prophetic element in this book, one of the greatest proofs of its inspiration. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge to the higher critics. Here's the challenge to the atheists. Here's the challenge to the agnostics. Here's the challenge to every attacker against the word of God. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Then verse 24, indeed, you are nothing. And your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. He who chooses the side of the critics who say there is no prophetic element in God's word chooses an abomination. Chooses wrong rather than right. Isn't that a great challenge? It's as current as when it was penned over 700 years before Christ came to this earth. It's as current and unanswerable tonight as it was then. Present your case, agnostics. Present your case, atheists. Tell us the former things. Declare to us the things to come. This book does that. And to the honest observer... There is no other conclusion that he or she may reach. This book does that. No other book does. No other book can because there is no other book like it. And scientific foreknowledge is an element of prophecy, really. And scientific foreknowledge simply is the phenomenon that lists certain 
truths that were not scientifically or medically or geographically, et cetera, discovered or archaeologically discovered for hundreds if not thousands of years after the statements themselves were made. It is he who hangs the earth upon nothing. He stretches out the north over the empty space, for example, Job 26, verse 7, and hangs the earth upon nothing. How did Job, how the writer of Job make that statement? The life of the flesh is in the blood. You've heard these before, Leviticus 17, 11. The eighth day for the circumcision of the child. When the vitamin K prothrombin levels are above 100% at that point in time and at no other time, seventh day, no, ninth day, no, eighth day, yes. And God said circumcise the child on the eighth day. Coincidental? How could it be? Statement after statement. Remember we talked about the stars not long ago. Uh, Abraham was taken out by the Lord God of heaven and said, look up into the heavens and count the stars. If you can, your descendants will be as those stars. In other words, you can't count the stars. And man kept trying until finally giving up in 1940 when he finally realized he couldn't count the stars. God told Abraham way back then, you can't count the stars. On and on we could go with example after uh, example of scientific foreknowledge. One statement might be a guess, two might be coincidental, but statement after statement, prophecy after prophecy, all of it cannot be coincidental. There is no book like the Bible. And another answer to the attackers, besides its preparation, the people about whom it speaks, the prophecies that are contained therein, is the preservation. The preservation of this book. The fact that I can hold it in my hand tonight, that in itself, and know that I hold the Word of God in my hand, is proof of its inspiration. Because again, Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The word of the Lord endures forever, 1 Peter 1 and verse 25. Indeed, it's preservation by the providence of God who through time has preserved his word so that we know that we have it in accurate form. Not every translation is, but we have those that are. Therefore, we know that we have the Word of God. Why did God choose to preserve His Word through providence? Why didn't He preserve the original manuscripts of every one of the books of, of the Bible? I don't have an exact answer, but I can speculate about it as Guy in Woods, the late Guy in Woods, did about why nobody's ever found Noah's Ark. I've mentioned this before. He said, with man's propensity to worship things, if they ever found Noah's Ark, Men would be falling down worshiping that old wood from Noah's Ark, probably. They'd probably do the same if they ever found the original manuscripts that Paul and the other inspired writers penned. They'd be more attracted to worshiping the item itself rather than to reading the contents and applying the contents to their lives. I know they did it with the brazen serpent. The Bible tells me they did. That they kept that thing and worshiped it down until the time when Hezekiah finally destroyed it. And God never intended for that to be the case. So I think the, just from a human standpoint, I can understand why God chose the method of preservation that he did. 
that through providence we have today the Word of God. And one final proof of the inspiration of the Word of God is the product. The product that comes from this book. What is that product? That product is a pure life of peace as a result of a complete transformation by this book. There's no other book that can change your life as can this book. And there are many of you here tonight who know exactly what I'm talking about. Everyone here tonight who's Christian knows what I'm talking about because your life has been completely changed. You're the product of a book, not just any book. You're the product of an inspired book that tells you what we sang earlier in that beautiful song, Jesus Loves Me. How do you know Jesus loves you? The song tells us, doesn't it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And in telling me of that love, it also tells me of how I should respond to that love by loving obedience to the one who first loved me, 1 John 4, 19. Any other kind of study that will produce that kind of transformation? Listen to what H.L. Hastings wrote about that. He said, there are men who study philosophy, astronomy, geology, geography, and mathematics. But did you ever hear a man say, I was an outcast, a wretched inebriate, a disgrace to my race, and a nuisance in the world until I began to study mathematics and learn the multiplication table and then turn my attention to geology? Got me a little hammer and knocked off the corners of the rocks and studied the formation of the earth. And since that time, I have been happy as the day is long. By studying mathematics? Not me. I'll tell you that. He goes on, I feel like singing all the time. My soul is full of triumph and peace and health and blessing have come to my desolate home once more. Anybody ever say that after a study of astronomy or philosophy or geology or geography or mathematics? No. But here's what the Word of God will cause you to say. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what the Word of God will cause you to say. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Here's what the Word of God will cause you to say. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is decaying, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's what the Word of God will cause you to say. I fought the good fight. 
I have finished the race. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Galatians 2.20, Philippians 3.13 and 14, 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, 2 Corinthians 4.16 through 18, 2 Timothy 4.7 and 8, those passages we've just quoted, they come from the Word of God. And in the product of the Word of God, that's what they cause, that product, the transformed believer. Not only to say, but to live and to believe with all of his heart. And so tonight, as we begin a new year, we will begin this year, and no doubt end it, hearing attack after attack after attack against this book from the atheists and from the agnostics and from those who apostatized, who once embraced it, from those who are apathetic toward it, from the academia nuts. But the Bible will still be able to answer, and God will still be issuing his challenge. Present your case, says the Lord. You don't have a case when it comes to challenging this word. And may we enter and live this year with the full assurance that that is still true. And may we do all that we can to help others who now may be unbelievers to see the folly of their disbelief, the folly of their unbelief, and come to the knowledge of the truth. If you haven't come to that knowledge tonight, we plead with you to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus to be the Christ, and to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Why? Because his inspired book tells you, believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins or perish eternally, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I will confess you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Those passages and so many others that support them can be cited to convince you, hopefully, that you need to obey the gospel if you haven't. And if you have apostatized, if you have left the faith, if you know tonight you have not been living in accordance with the word of God that you once loved and embraced and obeyed, come home to that word and to the living word, Jesus Christ, and to the God of heaven through repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly as we pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you. As we stand, will you come?